Welcome to part one of At The Mermaid. I'm Sarah Lafford and I've spent the last five months talking to people online about their memories of the Mermaid pub in Birmingham, seen by many as the birthplace of grindcore. At The Mermaid is a capsule production, a Home of Metal project. Home of Metal's projects join the dots between music, social history, visual art and fan cultures to produce a new perspective on heavy metal. One that is celebratory, eschews notions of high-low art and joins audiences and performers together. Home of Metal is devoted to the music that was born in and around Birmingham. Music that turned up the volume, down-tuned guitars and introduced a whole new meaning to the word heavy. The Mermaid was a large, dilapidated pub in Spark Hill, a working-class neighbourhood three miles south of Birmingham city centre. In the 1980s, the laid-back landlords welcomed teenage punks, hippies and metal kids to play their weirdo music in the upstairs room, while charging very little money for very bad cider. The Mermaid became a hub of the DIY music scene, with one-pound gigs, punk all dayers, fanzine and tape swapping, it was also a site of political education for many, and hunt saboteurs frequently gathered there before taking direct action. To create this podcast, we interviewed people who were part of the mermaid scene. We knew we wouldn't have much of a problem finding people to talk to. The Facebook group Upstairs at the Mermaid is amazingly active. People reminisce and share the flyers and photos they've kept for nearly 40 years. It's a testament to its power that everyone we spoke to still felt the mermaid's impact through their love of underground music, their commitment to anti-capitalist politics, or through the role it played in helping them to finally find their people. Sure, it was just a pub, a pretty grotty one too, but that doesn't mean it wasn't magic or worth celebrating. Music heritage is all about the stories we tell around these scenes, shining a torch on underground histories that could otherwise be forgotten in a haze of scrumpy and magic mushrooms. To start, let's hear from Nick Bullen, founder of Napalm Death, and regulars at The Mermaid, Julie Barton and Matthew Knight. I think it had a lot of positive elements going for it. People knew there would be a crowd as a rule for bands, you know, that there would be a good atmosphere. Birmingham is a good central location to act as the centre of a wheel so that people could come from East Anglia or from Bristol or from Wales or from Gateshead, Newcastle, Nottingham, all could come and meet. I think at the time, people would travel around the country quite frequently because in most of the UK at the time, there, there wasn't a massively vibrant scene in most cities. There were, there were pockets of people doing things but it wasn't perhaps the scene that those people had experienced five years before when they maybe when they were first getting into punk, where there were, there were a lot more people being involved. There was a feeling, almost like a sense of safety in numbers in a way, in that, that people would come together and you would know that there would be a good, good event and people would look forward to it. And I think because Daz Russell was programming a lot of concerts at the Mermaid, Whenever people came, they would get one of his leaflets with with two months' worth of concerts, and people would immediately plan, oh, we'll come up for that, we'll come up for that. Not only trusted it would be good enough, but knew that at £1.50 you could afford to take a punt. <laughs> if you didn't like the music, you could just hang out in the bar with all the, all the people you knew. So after The Mermaid closed, 
I think it was Daz still started putting gigs on at the Kaleidoscope. That was in the city centre, but that was then more expensive, obviously, because it was a city centre venue. So I would only go to gigs there that I knew were, you know, were bands that I wanted to see because I think it kind of jumped then to like £3.50 or £4. <laughs> it was a combination of it being really cheap and just kind of didn't always matter who the band was. It was more about just hanging out, meeting people, about socialising. and Every punk in the West Midlands would, would go to the Mermaid. It was like a beacon. It was sort of like a home for so many. I think probably because... Because it was so difficult to get venues, it, w- it was like a magnet. And so when, when you got such a wide sort of uh, catchment of people, it made it an interesting place to go. People were always new. It was always vibrant. It was different bands. It was the new, a new style of music was coming through. I think, I think with Napalm Death, it was fundamental in sort of like driving the sort of the, certain crusty sort of um, hardcore music forward. That, that's where it started. I suppose with Birmingham, I suppose it, it all stems from that kind of industrial, that sort of Black Sabbath type working class, very, very hard, thrashy music. I suppose it just went well with the whole kind of area. So I always found Birmingham to be, you know, hard, hardcore, hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Spark Hill is a working class neighbourhood of Birmingham. Employment and income levels are still among the lowest in the city. It is thought there's been a pub on the site of the Mermaid since the 17th century. A large Victorian building. Up until recently, the frontage featured a mermaid sculpted by Birmingham's Art Deco artist William Bloy. Almost a microcosm of Birmingham, Spark Hill has been shaped by immigration. Initially Irish, later South Asian and recently more Romanian and East African communities have moved to the area. It remains predominantly Asian, with 77% of the population having Asian heritage, mainly Pakistani. I asked people how they'd describe Spark Hill. At that time, in the sort of mid-80s, it was it was an inner-city area, and like most inner-cities in, in the country during the 80s, it, was, it kind of needed a bit of love, so to speak. Spark Hill's a very working-class area. A lot of Bangladeshi, a lot of Asian people had, had settled there, a lot of Irish people had settled there, and it seemed like a bit of a natural home for us, really. Being punks, we weren't welcome pretty much anywhere. People got the wrong idea about us, thought we were violent and all the rest of it, but actually the, the opposite was true. Most people considered it quite a sort of uh, risky, dangerous area, but I, I, felt, I didn't feel as threatened going from Birmingham to Spark Hill as I did from Birmingham to Redditch. There, I think I think it was a, a nice accepting community, you know, hence why a lot of immigrant people stayed there. It was, it was more accepting and people more open-minded. I used to love the area, I still do, you know, I still love that, that, that area, Spark Hill, Spark Mosley. So yeah, and then right in the middle of it, you had this massive great Victorian pub. Those sort of Victorian pubs now are, are Desi pubs and, and posh pubs that have been done up and all that kind of stuff. The the people that used to serve us was an Asian family, an Asian family that owned it. God only knows what they must have thought of us, like walking in with dreadlocks and ripped trousers and stinking of patchouli oil, you know, or, or like counting pennies, literally, so we could buy like a pint of cider. But it was all good natured, you know. They were lovely to us, and I, I hope you know most of us were, were good, were good to the, you know the bar staff, and, and just it was just a, a really nice place to go. It, it was somewhere where you you felt you know welcomed, you felt like you were with with like minded people. Living in Redditch, I was pretty much the only punk in the school. No one really understood what the hell I was talking about or the music I listened to and all that kind of stuff. 
And then if we went out in Redditch, then, you know, you'd have to run the gauntlet of the skinheads and the, the fascists. And it's the same in Birmingham, but at the Mermaid, it was a place where we felt safe. <laughs> and if anything did happen, everybody had everybody's back. That was a really important thing, especially the, the times that we were living in at the, at the time in the 80s, you know, with Thatcher and the way that the inner cities were being systematically dismantled and the tax on the working class left, right and centre. You know, it, it was like a, a welcome sanctuary. You could have like... A, three or four hours of ear-splitting music that you loved. In terms of, like, the, the kind of community aspect of it, I just remember it being, like, really multicultural and very, like, bustling, really. Loads of, like, kind of independent, family-run, like, shops and obviously, like, a ma- like massive, predominantly Asian community, which, you know, I wasn't used to. But coming from, like, Worcester, there was, there was an Asian community in Worcester, but, but nowhere near the same kind of thing. It was all kind of like a new a new experience, really. It's on a very major crossroads, Warwick Road and Stratford Road, which if you look back in history, that was the main area of the road in, in the whole of Birmingham, that crossroads. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. You got off the bus on the left-hand side and you looked up towards the pub. And it's, it's a big place on the corner. You obviously couldn't miss it. It was a bit run down. It wasn't one of the best areas, I suppose, but... I suppose for these kind of gigs, so you, that's where you're going to end up playing because it was there was some pretty crazy types about and probably the only place that would accommodate. I was warned it might be a bit dodgy. Although, you know, I was warned just be care- a bit careful when you get down there. So when we did get down, we'd go in groups, you know. A bit of curiosity mixed with hostility from the local community as well who I don't think were particularly happy that this pub suddenly became a magnet for all these, like, young, misfit, scruffy kids. Just shock. <laughs> that was what I used to see in people's faces. Just shock that, you know, that the way that people dressed and, you know, the hair and all of those things. I think it was just very, very different to what people were used to who were sort of, you know, from either like white working class Irish backgrounds or white working class English or the Asian population. And they all just thought we were a bunch of freaks and didn't know where we'd come from <laughs> or what we were doing there. <laughs> I was a first year student at Birmingham University and I am actually moved from Acelio to uh, Stony Lane in Spark Hill to be nearer the mermaid because it was only a short walk. That was Matthew Knight, Christian Burton, Stuart Meinl or Swag, Steve Charlesworth of Heresy, Steve Watson of Cerebral Fix, Julie Barton and Ben Andrews. Although the people I spoke to had clear memories of the area, the majority didn't live there. They travelled across Birmingham or across the country. Lots of the mermaid crowd came from smaller towns in the Midlands, places like Telford, Redditch, Litchfield and Meriden, teenage punks in dull towns. These often long and complicated journeys via bus, coach, train and even hitchhiking show the efforts that went into getting there. Here's Swag, Ming Dynasty, Steve Charlesworth, Christian, Tim, Paul Catton, Alan Wedgbury and Julie. Now I was living in um, Bentley Heath at the time, which is the other side of Solly Hall. So I, was, I used, to, used to get a bus into Solly Hall and get the 50 down then to, to the Mermaid. And there's quite a lot of us living that way. I mean, that's where Night Na- from Death was from that, that nick of the woods. That's how I know them. There's a big crowd of us used to get that bus and as it as it snaked into from Solihull into Spark Hill, more and more punks would get on it as the stops got closer and closer. Sort of a bit of a community on the top deck of the bus, really. By the time we got there, the first time 
I went to the Mermaid in that kind of scene with fanzines and bands you kind of wrote to each other quite a lot you know it's like you had all these pen pals all around the country uh, that you know you wrote to you swapped fanzines you told them what gigs you've been to and stuff like that and you did things like soap your stamps so then you could wipe the the stamp mark off and reuse your stamp so it's all like silly things like that I was writing to someone called um Hef who was in a band called Toxic Shock. They said they were doing a gig at the Mermaid with the Poison Girls. So I thought, I'm going to get on a on a coach from Talford and I'm going to go to uh, Birmingham and go, and go to see that gig and stay at theirs overnight. I got a coach, got off at Digbeth Coach Station and was like, oh, how do I get to the Mermaid? I'm being like scared to get on a on a local uh, bus because like, I might end up somewhere I didn't know. I bought an A to Z and I walked from Digbeth Coach Station to the Mermaid with my little A to Z. <laughs> Go, I'm in I'm in the big city on my own. <laughs> so yeah, it was very much like oh I'm just going to walk there because I'm too nervous to get a bus. But like remembering things like there used to be a metal flyover in Digbeth. Remembering walking past that. And then going up the bottom part of just under the bridge spark brook area and like the shops, like the curry houses, the bolty houses and stuff like that. Kind of like all a, a bit of a different experience and living in Telford. I got to the Mermaid kind of late afternoon and it's like, you know, we didn't have mobile phones then. So it was like you couldn't ring someone up and say, I'm here. But fortunately, they'd just done a sound check. So I bumped into them in a little mini. There was three of them in the mini and they picked me up and we went into Mosley to their flat until it was time to go to the gig. That's quite clear, that memory of them them in the mini and me jumping in the back. So, yeah, so that that was the first time I'd been to Birmingham. Quite a significant thing for me, really. It was like that, the start of a new stage of my life, I suppose, because it was within a year, a year and a half, I then moved to Birmingham. When the guitarist of the band I was in, Heresy, when he left, I used to just come up, go across on my own and I'd get the bus from Denston to Utoxeter, then I'd get a, a bus from Utoxeter to Burton-on-Trent, then I'd get a train from Burton-on-Trent to Birmingham New Street and then a bus from Birmingham, Birmingham New Street to Sparkill. <laughs> Music was everything to me, so yeah, it was a gig to see, then I'd try, try to get there. It was pretty hard because we I, I lived in a pretty remote place. In a very small little village. It was just word of mouth, really, back back then, wasn't it? It was like, see flyers around, and when you know that there's a good band playing or local bands, you know, like the local Birmingham bands were, were like, we were, like, aspiring to be like them at the time. So, yeah, that's how we kind of, like, became aware of The Mermaid, and it was very exciting, exciting for us. It's like, uh, well, we were like still at school and one, one of the gigs in particular, we went, we sort of basically left early from school and went on the train, stashed our school uniforms in rucksacks and went to the gig, ended up walking from, well, walking from New Street to The Mermaid, and which was a, like amazing adventure for us anyway. And then uh, after the gig, sleeping rough at New Street Station. Uh, on the platform <laughs> in, like, in, um, in the waiting rooms because they had waiting rooms on the platforms in those days and then like getting the train back in the morning that was uh, in particular that happened on a Friday because most of the gigs that I went to at the Mermaid were either a Saturday or a Friday I don't think they really had that many in the week so 
we'd get like uh, we'd get the train stage the, the train from um, Fourgate Street Station in uh, in Worcester. Got some chips on the way to Spark Hill. So this particular gig was Friday the twentieth of November, nineteen eighty seven, which was uh, Circle Jerks, Gangrene, and Death Warmed Up, who were, um, did quite a lot of gigs at the time, um, local gigs. Uh, certainly like Birmingham gigs and for us so Circle Jerks and Gangrene were pinnacle of like American hardcore and skate you know skating as well well I was never really a skater but my friend was and it was like that kind of thing isn't it you used to see you get Thrasher magazine all these bands were like featured in Thrasher and in the UK publications and yeah, if I get the chance to see them like play live when you're like 16, you're going to get there however you do it. But we just told each other's parents that we were staying at each other's houses, kind of thing. And luckily, they never like checked up on us. So <laughs> it's, like, it's quite dangerous when you think about it. That like you know now, but it was um, we never really thought about that at the time. We were just sort of on a mission on a mission to kind of just experience uh, like punk and hardcore and, and, uh, and gigs and stuff. So, yeah. When I talk to people about, they say, oh, when did you first go to the Mermaid? Or they were always like missions. They weren't like, it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to go out and go to a gig. We didn't live down the road. They were like these ridiculous missions where we like come from like 30 miles away. Going to a gig with all of our, with our school uniform in our, in our rucksacks, you know, and then sleeping rough afterwards was a it was it felt like something that we shouldn't be doing and we would be very like severely frowned on (laughs) by by parents and stuff and it felt like it did feel like quite dangerous but by direct contrast the, the place itself was very friendly and very kind of felt very safe so even though it was a real edgy thing it was a safe space as well bit of a trek to get there because you had to get the 63 into town and then the two or the 12 up to the mermaid so it'd take you a good hour to get there a good hour to get back i do remember i'm not sure if i had been there but i remember walking home to rubri from town which is 10 miles i did that once or twice come good friends with the, the guys then and then ian passed his driving test and he said so because we were like i mean we're in our 50s now but we were like 17 then i think it might be a bit 16 17 and then he said oh i'm going up to see someone's out the mermaid so i went up with him that's what we used to do just go to the mermaid do eat drive and uh that's where i literally spent every saturday night literally every saturday night and then when dick and us were busy i'd either be out with them or if they weren't up for it as life kind of moved i used to get the national express from ross i'd, I'd met jim who uh, uh who was on the um Second side of scum, Napalm Death Scum, and I'd crash the is, and then I used to crash it is every weekend if I didn't travel up. So I'd get the National Express up, get off at Digbeth, walk up to Spark Hill. Fuck, we wouldn't want to do that now. And then like I'd meet Jim at the gig, go back to his after, then I'd get the bus in and, and trot off home on the National Express the next day. You know, that was that was my life, you know. That's how I found out about the mermaid anyway. So knowing that you couldn't get the bus if you were on time and you have to walk because you'd spent all your money. For some reason at the time, you didn't mind. I felt really welcome, really safe, really at home. It was the bus journey back home to Litchfield that was the terrible, or the train journey back home. That was the scary bit. I've been threatened so many times when I was a teenager in Litchfield just for having pink hair, red hair, purple hair, looking different. 
So yeah, it was really the mentality, I think, of England in the 80s, I think, especially places like Litchfield, it's really like Little Britain, you know, kind of. And then the fact that it was a squaddy town as well. So quite a lot of the time when I got threatened or hassled, it was by squaddies. So I think, you know, that was part of that kind of mentality as well. I never felt threatened, never felt intimidated, felt more comfortable there than I did in the place where I'd grown up and gone to school. For those of us who weren't there, I asked people to paint a picture of the mermaid. Right, so you're walking up through Spark Hill and you just saw this, like, really run-down pub. You don't see them like that anymore. The classic fucking smash bottles outside and all that. You know, it wasn't, like, derelict, but it was just bloody rough. And I can remember once I got... So, I, of course, you get off the bus, you get there really early. So I'd either have to hang around outside, which in itself was deadly, or I started going into the bar. And it used to be full of, like, Spark Hill's most fucking crazy people drinking uh, the, the rough cider that they used to serve there. People would be singing and fucking dancing. Lots of, there was, um, I think it was quite a big Irish community in there. And they, there was lots of, lots of Irish song. And, and like, I, I started just going, they didn't know who I was. They just left me alone and that. But I'd just sit there amusing myself, you know, watching and just with a, a glass of cider. I'd usually wait for, like, Daz Russell to turn up and I'd get in or I'd wait for a band to turn up and help them gather their gear. But so that, you know, so it was like a really rough bar downstairs and then there was a door on the side so the, the mermaid venue was obviously it was upstairs at the mermaid is no so up there and old school sticky carpet you walk in you'd have like a few tables you'd have like earache was still like a earache record label was still a fucking table you know selling you know uh accused albums you have, uh, the manic ears guy uh, shane and manic ears was another record label on another desk People selling zines and records and that. It was great going there. It's put my hairs up on the back of my neck talking about this, you know. And then, of course, you walk straight through, you go into, like, the main room and, like, the wallpaper's hanging off. And you can recognise a picture from the mermaid anywhere. It doesn't even need to say mermaid. Someone will put an old picture up and you know it was the mermaid because of that it had that wallpaper, right? It had this specific type of wall, wallpaper. And you go there or you sort of turn off and the toilets were there, like, literally the roughest toilets in Birmingham. And then you go into uh, like a bar, and that was all right. A few tables and chairs and that, and fucking there'd be drunk punks all over the place. And oh, mate, honestly, the best days you can imagine as a young kid who just sort of spent like four or five years listening to punk, finally being old enough and, and independent enough to because it's fuck all around here. And it was like a, a this huge community. After a while, you sort of go in there, I could go, I'd go there on my own. And like, straight away, you know someone, oh, so and so, there's Nick, Nick, but, you know, and people will travel from well over the bloody Midlands and that to get there. Uh, you know, you never had an empty gig. Yeah, you just walk in, it became like, it, it, it sort of felt like home at the time, you know, it was just like, I love, I love the mermaid. It's just, just that place, you know, and then you, the car park was around the back and that was like full of fucking smashed glass everywhere and puke and people pissing up against the wall. It was just... It was like, it was just, it was, it was a tough place. And, and do you know what? It was one of those things, I think probably because I was young, you're a little bit more fearless, aren't you? Now, like sort of midlife, you think, fuck, I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't go in that fucking place. The thing about the mermaid was always the, and it was, and the windows as well. And there was like those, these windows and they were always just dripping in condensation because it used to get so fucking hot in there. And the floor used to bounce, you know, as well. You always think it's going to cave in. Because I'm pretty sure building standards didn't really apply to the mermaid. Uh, that's the impression I got. I remember it being, thinking, wow, it's like, it's enormous. 
you know, it was just like this big Victorian punk cathedral, I suppose. There was like a big fireplace, I think. And we uh, used to basically hoist ourselves up and sit on the mantelpiece. I think it was a fireplace or it used to be a fireplace. I don't know. I'm a bit hazy on that, but we'd normally get like a good vantage point at the back for the, the support bands and then go in when the main bands came on. Depending on how kind of like lively or violent it looked anyway for, for youngsters. <laughs> it's like was a, a, a shitty, dirty, grimy, grotty pub. Some of the best shows I ever saw were there as well. I mean, like, without doubt, some of the best performances I ever saw by bands. Swans in 1987 there was utterly ridiculous. But, you know, one of the most life-changing shows I ever saw there was Head of David before I joined. I don't think even Dave Cochran was in the band then. I think it was just prior to Dave joining, or maybe it was when Dave just joined him. That I can't recall, which is ridiculous, considering it was one of the best performances I ever saw. It was the only time a band, was, you know, there was like a mini stage there at the back end. You got these grimy stairs, and as you came up to the top top of the stairs, you'd go through these side doors of the pub, go up these, these stairs, turn left, you were met with two sets of doors. The doors on the left were the doors that led you into the venue and the doors on the right led you into the bar. The bar was a shitty smeggle with the worst lighting, the most oppressive lighting as well. I remember the lighting being so grim in there and yellow. And the left was the venue. The stage was a foot or so. But when I saw Head of David there, they played not on the stage, but they played to the left under the windows. So they played the entire width of the vent of the venue or the length sorry so and that made it even more fucking amazing it was just incredible because the band spun from left to right where you, it should really be on a concise stage you know unforgettable performance i go still i can walk myself through the entire thing now their version of Ro uh, rocket usa by suicide unbelievable this is way before i joined the band i didn't even know know the people then we were playing as napalm death then though definitely but when we were still like the house mermaid band you know and the, the kid band that people would laugh at, which is well documented, uh, particularly on my behalf, of we were a bit of a joke band. I mean, mostly because we were all kids and super young. I mean, I was always the youngest kid as well. In that entire place, I think I was often the youngest. Until towards the end of me being in Napalm Death, you had some younger kids, and they a lot of them kids became Doom, you know, the, 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 the band Doom. So it became, who are all people, you know, I met through Nick, Nick Bolland, you know, in one, in one way or another, really. Because, you know, where I came from was a Nowheresville place, you know, Nowheresville council estate, where you, it wouldn't really lead you to these people. It was only through me going to Birmingham's rag market that I'd get anywhere near anyone, you know. And I think it's somewhat as well quite documented that, you know, me being in Napalm Death and presenting Nick with my music, which he was completely enamoured with, was just by a chance meeting with him in the rag market at a, at a stall that sold bootleg cassettes, you know. A lot of us would gravitate to that because it felt like, you know, you had some sense of belonging, you know, for a lot of outsiders. There was really lovely people that ran that bootleg stall and both from either extreme, one, one guy, and they were adults, so to speak, you know, I'd be there as a 14-year-old and these guys were like adults. And as we know then, if you were 14, even a 20-year-old would appear like a 75-year-old, you know what I mean? There'd be this huge age gap and it would feel so significant. And I really wanted to learn from people, you know. And I really wanted to uh, 
people to hear my music, you know. I found since that clearly that was, it's my singular obsession, as a lot of us autistics have, you know. I was bludgeoning with it, you know. I, I wanted to share what I was trying to express. So I had all these demos. I already had a cassette label. By the time I was 13, you know, I had a cassette label with about 45 releases, you know. And I was obsessive with cataloging these. I, was, I wanted to have as many catalog numbers as possible and as many cassettes as possible. And I was lucky if I sold one, but it didn't really matter. I was just releasing them, you know. I already had about 17 projects by that time, you know, by the age of 13 and a half. You also had people who, who were in the pub downstairs, much older people who would just come up and dance in unusual ways, you know, pensioners and stuff. And it, it was a bit, you know, it was strange. It great, great fun. And the, the thing about it also was that um, you didn't feel intimidated. Now, whether that was because we were young or what, but, you know, there were lots of drugs, glue, you know, cheap beer. You didn't, it didn't feel scary or angry. The music was angry because it was you know, trying to describe and trying to make sense of what were they were believed in yeah. and what was going on. The toilets were like, you know, if somebody made a hole anywhere, it stayed there for years, <laughs> you know, and there was, the toilets were a real mess. There was wee everywhere. People were just sat down, rolling joints or just sat down. People used to drink or smoke too much or get absolutely stoned, lay down. So you'd be walking along, stepping over people, who would just lay in the corridors. People didn't control it. There weren't minders or bouncers like that. There was nothing like that. It was self-governed. And if somebody did become violent, the people in there would deal with it themselves. They'd break it up, find out what had happened, and then decide themselves between them who started it or whatever, and take action they thought necessary. That's what seemed to happen. There wasn't any control. It was mostly peaceful. It really was. You know, when they talk about anarchy and sort of, oh, how was anybody going to control it? It was a bit like that in there, because it was like controlled by people who just worked out what happened and stopped any violence. Do you think it was built? I bet it's amazing in its heyday. It was kind of down on its uppers when I first went. You could kind of tell you know, it, was, it was all kind of worn and stuff, which, which was great because that's why you were like gigs on there. Because if it was a new build, I'd tell any of that would have happened. But I was amazed how big it was, to be honest. It's quite a big building. Yeah, the size of the place, I and mean, it's got really high ceilings. It was, it, was a, it was a great place. It's got really high ceilings. It's cheap things. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? It was a really old building. And I, I remember just walking through into the bar, all the old, old men in their booths and stuff, and they were great. You know, they were, they were not phased by crusties put with blood-red Mohawks or whatever. You know what I mean? They were not bothered. It was a nice atmosphere. When we got there, it was quite a bit, it's a big building, the Mermaid. It must, must have been, you know, a pretty nice place years back. But it was obviously pretty run down. Uh, when we went to the right-hand side, and there was a door. Then he went in there. To the left-hand side, there was where the downstairs bar was, which was pretty rough. It was quite a lot of, uh, obviously at the time, it was full of cigarette smoke. There was uh, quite a few loud characters in there, a lot of swearing and shouting. For the venue, the, the staircase was on the right-hand side, so you went up. And then it was like a long corridor with like a really, I remember the really kind of bright, red kind of really gaudy looking carpet going all the way down and then the, the gig venue was kind of at the left and then it went round the side to the bar very kind of run down obviously i'd say it must have been a nice place at the time years years back but yeah it was pretty dirty i just remember getting getting off the bus 
because you could see it. You got off the bus on the left-hand side. You looked up towards the towards the pub, and it's it was a big place on the corner. So yeah, you, you you obviously couldn't miss it. I did live on Ladypool Road for a little while, and it was just it was just it was really great. There was just like really interesting places to go and eat. I just remember the Mermaid was just like this this big building, and it just had this like this in the stone a kind of carving of a mermaid <laughs> right right high up you know at the top of the building and then going inside it was massive i just remember the wallpaper the actual bar had this wallpaper like it could have been someone's living room it was like um quite small and the stage was had windows behind it so i remember when i saw the poison girls play they had the banners in front of the windows so I didn't realise there was windows there so I went to see other bands and it was like and, and I've seen other people's photos from the time and it does look like kind of a cross between a bar and a living room it's really weird yeah it was a little bit riffy you know <laughs> Sparkill was yeah, I mean, it's, people say it's got worse it was an average kind of area you know a bit run down faded glory it's sort of victorian area area people had moved out and it was cheaper shops and the mermaid was a kind of it was a bit of a backstreet boozer it was on the on the main road but you'd go in the ground floor and i think it was an irish landlord a lot of irish blokes drank there sit downstairs drinking mild and bitter and sitting around like you would in a pub thick with smoke but then the bands were on upstairs so you i think the staircase was the left hand side and you went up a quite an ornate victorian staircase into the top room and again that was faded glory i think it was wallpapered and you could tell it was once a quite a posh saloon probably a snooker hall or something but it just you know been left over the years i think towards the end it was a bit dilapidated i think someone stripped all the wallpaper off at one point or it ripped off you know you got it you knew it was it would be a nice place once and then you went into the big room and there was the stage and, and the windows. I don't think there were any curtains, so you could see out over the Stratford Road. And it was good acoustics, big room, you know, sprung wood. I mean, maybe it was a dance floor, I don't think it was a snooker hall. It was quite incongruous surroundings, you know. You went into some sort of faded Victorian things and you were seeing all these bands of 18 to 20-year-olds making a massive noise. It, it was kind of a contextual thing. And there was a corridor outside, and that's where they had the curry. What well, really wide corridor outside the room. But I, I don't think there was a bar upstairs either, because I remember going downstairs to get a drink, and sometimes if we had enough, we'd sit downstairs and have a drink occasionally. Yeah, no, no, nice venue, but not, not, not much of a concession to it being a club or anything. You know, it was the top, top room of the pub, really. It was obviously, well, it still is. It was a really run-down area. There was a uh, yeah, big Asian community, big Irish community. In the bar downstairs, there's still a lot of Irish old guys used to drink in the bar downstairs. Quite a lot of Asian guys did then as well. I think it was probably the people who were like first generation migrants. I think it was it was like less taboo to drink alcohol. Maybe more of a thing of wanting to fit in as well. I don't know, but um, or maybe just because you didn't have your family there looking over your shoulder, so you could. So yeah, it was a bit of a mad mixture downstairs, sort of Irish and Asian. There was a guy who worked behind the bar, a young Asian lad, who had a thick Irish accent, which just like completely confused me the first time I met him. The layout, it was really like cavernous. So all the gigs happened upstairs and there was like a long corridor that you'd walk into and then go through some double doors into the venue. And then off the side, that's where the upstairs bar was. And a lot of the time people just used to hang out in the bar on the side as well. It was 
yeah, it was huge. And with some more memories, here's Stick from Amoebics, Derek Einan and Ian Lee. We used to like rehearse in Bath. At the time when we were playing at the Mermaid, it was kind of probably around 85 to around 87, I think. So we went there quite a few times. We'd just like hire or borrow whatever shitbox we could to drive up from Bath. We'd just kind of like bump up onto the pavement right outside the front door and load all your shit in. So you, when you were taking your stuff on stage, you were going past all the people that were already up the stairs. And so you're dragging all your stuff in there, you know. Then afterwards, you had to take all your stuff out. I remember the floor. The floor was always sticky. Your feet would stick to the floor. And it's not something you wanted to fall over on, you know. And the wallpaper as well. They had this kind of old Victorian wallpaper. And we always used to take banners with us. We always put our banners up, you know. So we'd be out there with our, sticking our banners up with, like, duct tape, like everyone did back then. You'd kind of have to stick it over the wallpaper. So you'd, you'd duct tape them up in, like, and because it was so hot in there and got so sweaty, your banner would just fall down in about five minutes. It'd be quite embarrassing. You'd spent all this time getting in the right position and that and sticking up there with all this duct tape. And however much you put on, the sweat on the walls would just go, and it would just peel off and fall down. <laughs> but yeah, that was a pretty crazy. There was a bar downstairs that was kind of shady, a bit not really connected with the music upstairs. There was a bar downstairs that was a bit more shady and whatever went on down here, kind of a bit of a sketchy kind of vibe. And upstairs was like, like just always absolutely heaving with people, always It'd be kind of stepping over these piles of kind of rags on the floor and you'd think, oh, that was just, oh, it's a person drunk on the floor. So like a half people would be paralyzed before it even started. So it used to kind of go off quite a lot in there. Yeah, it was a pretty crazy place. It was at the time just a very dilapidated old pub. And the room upstairs, there was an old sign saying ballroom. So it must once have been, you know, ballroom dancing up there. God knows when. But it was in a terrible state of repair it really was falling apart and there was no investment had gone into it but the the uh, the man who ran it he was very very keen to fill that room with people with whomever would spend money over his bar and i remember him telling me about his bar take and it was phenomenal it was you know about about a month's takings in a night grotty is a working run down beaten up tatty now of course the the buildings are restaurant, I believe, and it's got a model pool outside it as well. Different people promoted shows there, but it was Daz Russell of Floating Concerts who tirelessly organised underground shows at The Mermaid. Entry to gigs was free or cheap, with all dayers featuring ten bands costing as little as one pound. Despite that, many gained free entry by shimmying up a drainpipe and climbing through a window into the women's toilets, including Swag and Julie. Maybe that's why he couldn't pay the bands, he didn't charge enough at the door. But then people, the trouble is you say, then people would break in. That's another thing I should probably mention is that there was, there was a known way of getting into the gig without paying. It was quite dangerous, but you shimmy up a drainpipe outside, up to the second floor and go through the window. <laughs> I never did that either. <laughs> either pound. I think I was 17. And uh, I went with my boyfriend who lived in Birmingham in Moseley and I'd never heard of the mermaid and he just said, oh, we're going to a gig. Yeah, so we took the bus from Moseley, took the number eight, I still remember, bus route, what a nerd. (laughs) And um, yeah, and it was just like the size of the pub. I'd never seen a pub that size before. It was huge. It was like the size of a hotel. 
but also um, my boyfriend decided that uh, he didn't want to pay the £1.50 door charging. So he persuaded me to climb up over the, there was like a sort of flat roof that you could get up onto and then uh, shimmy up to the women's toilets and get in that way. So yeah, he persuaded me to do that, but we'd taken some mushrooms before we left his house. <laughs> and uh, I think they were just about starting to kick in when I got up on the roof and then he just disappeared through the window of the ladies' toilet. And I just sat on the roof for about half an hour, just totally having the fear. And I was looking down and looking down didn't look like a very safe option. <laughs> but also going forward and over into the women's toilets looked absolutely terrifying. So I just sat there just thinking he'll come back in a minute and he'll notice that I'm not there. Well, obviously he didn't. <laughs> I think that says quite a lot about my choice in men. <laughs> yeah, eventually I just had to give myself a talking to and get a grip and just like, are you going to, you know, it's either spend the night sitting on this roof, (laughs) uh, terrified or fall to your death or try and get through the window. So yeah, I eventually managed to kind of get myself up and through the window and into the gig. And then that was just like, possibly something to do with the mushrooms as well. But it was just like entering another world for me, completely a different world, you know, just to see a pub full of of punks, people who look like me, and it was just completely different to anything, you know, in Litchfield, which is a really white, middle to working class town. But it's a big squaddy town as well. So all the pubs in Litchfield were just horrendous. Like you I couldn't go well, I mean I wasn't supposed to go into the pub because I was only 17, but <laughs> the ones, you know, that would let people in <laughs> who were a bit younger, you didn't want to go to them anyway, because they were full of squaddies. And if you look different, it was just unbearable you know you were just like had a target on your back basically so yeah it was just really for me amazing to just like crawl through the window of the ladies toilets open the door and it was just yeah like sensory overload really yeah the smell smell of scrumpy patchouli oil unwashed clothes (laughs) and uh yeah and then just like this just really you know whole variety of really colourful looking people and um, think it was UK subs that were playing that night didn't particularly go to see them yeah definitely not my favourite band but yeah uh, I think a lot of the time you didn't go to the Mermaid to see a particular band just went there to see mates and hang out and see who was playing a lot of the time I'd go and I wouldn't know who was on but it'd just go for for the dust as they say. I heard about other people's first time at the Mermaid. His swag again, Matthew and Nick. Rat and Nick, who were in No Palm Death. We, we, we took some mushrooms in the day. <laughs> we were in a derelict hall called Berry Hall, which is, which is uh, in Solihull. It's not there, not there now at all. It's been completely demolished. They said, oh, we, we're going to go there and do some mushrooms, and then we, we're going to leave early because we've got this gig at the Mermaid. Me and a few other guys said, um, well, well, we'll come and watch you, you know. So we got the bus to the Mermaid bit later and it was an all-day event that they were playing I don't know who else was playing I've no idea but I remember it was very poorly attended because at the, on the same day there was a crass all day at the Pacific and most of the pubs had gone to that on the bus on the way there I got stung on the head by a bee which uh, made it all even more surreal and I got in there went upstairs to where the bands were playing I knew all the members of Napalm at that time and it was uh, just an amazing experience and um, it was a great atmosphere there's lots of people, but there's quite a few people dancing, the few that were there. And it was just a real eye-opener, you know, what a sort of DIY underground punk would be like, you know. 
really enjoyed it and never looked back from there. First really. time I ever went, our band played. Our band supported uh, the instigators and decadence within. I was 15, first gig I'd ever done. Uh, we managed to get on a, a bill at the Mermaid, which I thought was absolutely massive because I was dying to go to the Mermaid. I used to see the flyers every week, see all the bands that were playing there. And I, was, I was into all of them. So to play the Mermaid was just like a, a sort of dream come true at 15 years old. <laughs> <laughs> could die happy then the, the first time we went we got the bus we had all our instruments we got the bus from uh Redditch to Birmingham and then we got uh, I think it was like the 31 or 32 I think it was from town to Spark Hill we were that enthusiastic we got there about three hours too early so we sat down in the bottom bar the bottom bar was sort of populated mainly by sort of like the Irish community so uh we had lots of mad chats with these these mad Irish Irish geezers like drinking uh well, I think we were drinking bitter at the time because it was the cheapest pint we could afford. We were uh, sat down there for a good couple of hours waiting to go up upstairs to, to where, the, where the gig is. I also remember I had a Mohican at the time and I took ages all morning spiking it up perfectly. And because it was it was in August and it was that hot and humid, it had been raining, but it was still hot. It, it completely collapsed. My big moment with the great Mohican was just, uh, it was ruined somewhat. Yes, yeah, so I always remember that flat Mohican with the mermaid I was gutted. In the late 70s, there'd been some substantial degree of younger people going to particularly punk gigs. But by that point in the 80s, punk had become more of a an underground subculture as opposed to its its initial beginnings. It was predominantly people in their late teens, but but not so many people who were in their early teens. My attitude was that I just really wanted to go and listen to music and see these groups, so I would regardless if I could. And with a more than relaxed approach to running a pub, the landlord's beer and scrumpy is remembered by Swag, Justin Broadrick from Napalm Death, and Ben as pure gut rot stuff. The people that ran it, I think they were Indians or Pakistanis, and they uh, they didn't look after the beer at all. And uh, I always tell this story. Of once, they used to sell this scrumpy in there that everyone used to buy because it was so cheap. And it was real gut rot stuff, you know. And it got you drinking in an instant. I don't know what was in it. I remember once I bought a pint, and the head looked a bit more unusual than previous times. So I, I put my finger on it, and I picked the head up and held it, this circle in my hand. It was like a solid head on this point. I said, I'm not going to drink that. And the ultimate um, example of how disgusting it was in there was there was a there was a guy called Bry who was in early early lineup of Doom. I think he ended up doing the sound at the one in twelve in Bradford. There was a pool room downstairs, and he was sick on the carpet on a Saturday night. And I went to a gig there seven days later, the following Saturday, and the pool of sick was still there. So that gives you an idea of how they used to clear up the pub at the end of the. <laughs> The toilets were often smashed, probably by the punks, to be fair. They were actually, sometimes there were no toilets. They were just a pile of pictures chowing on the floor. You know. So eventually, it was going to get closed down. It did. Not only was I like 14, 15, we were all just discovering drink and drugs. I remember playing shows on Magic Mushrooms after doing bongs, drinking like cheap-ass scrumpy. And a lot of us were in those states, you know. So, I mean, trying to really now at this at the tender ages, a lot of us are trying to, you know, because I'm sure an awful lot of what I uh, uh, recount, I would never be so bold as to say it was factual. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I wouldn't be a fantasist and say it was fictional. 
but it's just an interpretation. And as time has gone on, as we know, these things, they change. You know, your memory of a change. I can have conversations with many people and be like, do you remember blah, blah, blah? And they'll be like, nah, that didn't happen like that. It happened like this. You went uh, in the side entrance and you got served by like 14-year-old Asian kids. They had a massive open fire upstairs and they just served you like dodgy scrumpy. It was pretty falling apart even then. Tiny little stage upstairs. And uh, I can't remember much more about uh, the exact first time I went. But, I mean, it was... You could make as much noise as you wanted because there wasn't anything else around there, really. The Mermaid was, of course, a pub, and so while gigs were happening upstairs, the regulars stayed in the downstairs bar. Here's Nick Bullen again. The downstairs of the Mermaid with its normal patrons could probably have been quite an intimidating and unnerving place to visit because, like a lot of pubs, it had its regulars who viewed it as their own as their place and wondered why you would be there. It was, I've been told by some of the women I know that it was rather intimidating for them as women going to there. I was naive in my teens and would happily go almost anywhere and not really think about the consequences. Having said that, there weren't really any consequences in that sense because... The people in the front bar didn't go in upstairs to the gigs. The people who went to the gigs generally didn't go in the front bar. So they coexisted together fairly comfortably. Next time, we'll talk about the politics and culture of the mermaid scene. We'll hear more about the community and crowd at The Mermaid and what it meant to truly do it yourself. At The Mermaid is a capsule production created with funding from Historic England. Music kindly provided by Blue Roof and archive clips thanks to Uncouth Youth and Rolling Rock videos on YouTube. Please look out for the publication too and thank you to all the contributors. Alice Rosenthal produced this series. Find out more about Home of Metal at homeofmetal.com.